I'm excited to, uh, to bring you guys God's word this morning. Uh, there's quite a few new people out there. So if you're totally new to Lathia, this is your first time here. Uh, we have something that we give every person here at the church. It's a scripture journal. Uh, so if you want a scripture journal, just raise your hand. Uh, there's a couple people walking around. They'll uh, give you a scripture journal uh, so you can be able to follow along with us um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 um, and take notes with us. Um, I'm, I'm aware that this particular chapter, uh, just listening to Brent read it a second ago, just sounds so irrelevant um, to our culture and to just like where we are as people. Uh, so I'm excited to bring you God's word as a consequence of that. The title of my message this morning is Don't Eat Idle Meat. Don't Eat Idle Meat. Obviously, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to go through the whole chapter this morning. Uh, we'll do it um, as quickly as we can. We're going to go through this whole chapter. A couple years ago, I had a really close friend who was taking break from college over the winter. Um, we were reconnecting during that time. And he was at Bible college at the time, and I was really excited uh, just to hear about all the things he was learning, all the things about God that he was uh, beginning to understand on a deeper level, on a different level. And my excitement soon dissipated as I was talking to that friend because he began to tell me about his views on alcohol, which were different than they had been before he went to Bible college. He began to tell me that all the other guys who went with him, there was about uh, five guys from our church that all went to this Bible college. All those other guys had changed their mind about drinking, and he also had changed his mind about drinking while at this Bible college. He began to explain to me why he had changed his mind. And after several hours of he and I kind of going back and forth about that, he and I debating about that from the Bible, I realized that we just weren't going to come to an agreement about this issue of the consumption of alcohol. And up until this point in our friendship, we had never disagreed about anything. So this was so unusual for us to not see eye to eye about this. I was just totally shocked that he was telling me that it was okay for a Christian to drink. And I was baffled by the thought that he would do that, let alone anyone else who had gone to that particular college. He was, as a good friend, super patient with me as he just walked me through the Bible, walked me through the Word to explain his viewpoint. And I began to seriously consider what the Bible said about these matters as opposed to what my church had always told me growing up. And he was unwittingly teaching me to develop my views about anything and everything from the Bible as opposed to any other source in life. That wasn't his aim in that conversation. He just wanted to, to catch me up on where he was in his life, but that was what he was doing. And today what we're going to see from this text is that our convictions about what's right and what's wrong, our convictions about all the gray matter in between what's right and what's wrong must ultimately come from God's word. And there are a few things in the Bible that would seem to be more irrelevant than this question of eating meat sacrificed to an idol. But when we understand why Paul is describing this, we'll get the crux of his argument and we'll understand how this is relevant to us today. And so this morning, what we're going to seek is we're going to seek God's transformation and how we interact with those both inside and outside the community of faith when it comes to things that we disagree about because of our convictions. And so let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through 3 again. The word says these words. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. You guys be grateful to hear this, that I only have two points this morning. Just two points, and this is the first one. Idolatry examined, idolatry examined. And to, to work our way through these points, I want to ask a couple questions. And the first question is this question. What is an idol? What is an idol? This is something that's very foreign to us. So, so let's go back to the ancient world for a second, and let's look at what is an idol. You see, Corinth, like many other major Roman cities um, in the empire, had several pagan temples and these usually contain an idol of some sort or another. The temple complexes were used back then for a variety of pagan festival rituals. And many social events took place in the temple as well. There were gathering spots. It was very difficult to be a part of the community of Corinth and avoid going to a temple altogether. If you wanted to go to a wedding for a family member, for example, you went to the temple. 
And so a common part of pagan festivals or even generally speaking festivities was the sacrificing of animals to a pagan deity in a temple. And after that sacrifice, there would be the, the cooking and the consumption of that blessed meat by the worshipers. The ancient Romans, and indeed all the peoples around them, worshipped a pantheon of gods. In Corinth, they worshipped the male deities of Poseidon and Apollos and Zeus and Pan. And they worshipped female deities like Aphrodite and, and Demeter and Kor. They worshipped a host of gods. And the patron god of the city of Corinth was actually Apollos, who had been worshipped in that city centuries prior by the Greeks. So there was a long, long time of worship of idols. And so to buy meat in the public market was to buy meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. There was really no way around this in the ancient world. In antiquity, the gods were worshipped through sacrifice, not by singing songs, not by verbiage per se. That was a Christian or a Jewish mode of worship that wasn't the ancient people's way of worshiping their gods. The ancient peoples would sacrifice their food. They would sacrifice meat and vegetables to their gods to worship them. They would bring an animal, place part of their animal on the altar to be burned right next to the idol or the statue of their god, and the smell of that burnt sacrifice would go up into the nostrils of the deity, and he was to be pleased or placated by that sacrifice. And the rest of the food then would be placed on tables in the temple or the shrine where people would sit with their friends and have festive meals in the presence of the deity. Numbers 25 verses 1 through 2 say these words. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. This is how they worshiped in the ancient world. They sacrificed, they burned it, they ate together. That's how they worshiped. Now again, right outside of the temple, back in the ancient Roman world, were these markets. There would be meat markets or grain markets, just food markets in general, right outside of the temples. And the food sacrificed to the gods became food for the priests, and those who took care of the temple or the shrine. But there was always an abundance of meat or other food items left over. And so consequently, that meat was sold in the marketplace. There was one notable exception in the ancient world to those uh, who would buy this type of meat, and that was the Jews in the Roman Empire. Out of devotion to the one God, and out of a concern to adhere to the strict dietary uh, regulations that God had in the Old Testament, they did not eat this type of meat at all. Jews completely avoided everything having to do with idolatry and everything having to do with the public market altogether. And there were a significant number of Gentile Christians who were in the church at Corinth. And so this question around eating meat sacrificed to an idol was super relevant. They had become believers. They had left the pagan idolatry. They had left the worship of all those gods. They had begun to follow Jesus. And now they have to figure out how are they going to interact in their society when every aspect of their society is tainted with idol worship, even when it comes to something as simple as going to the grocery store. They had to figure out how they're going to be good Christians and citizens of the empire. So that's what ancient idolatry looked like. But let's look at modern times as well. You see, today we have several idols. They may not look like they did back in the ancient world. Sometimes they do. I've known people when I was in high school who practiced Wicca, who practiced animism in general. Sometimes people practice these ancient religions in the 21st century. That does on occasion occur. But nonetheless, we all, on some level, should understand idolatry because idolatry is something that is practiced today. I want to draw from Tim Keller quite a bit because his ideas about this area are so clear. He said these things about idols. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. 
Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. If anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity, then it is an idol. Furthermore, he said these words, idolatry is not just the failure to obey God, it is setting of the whole heart on something besides God. He said those words in his book, Counterfeit Gods, which I would highly recommend to you guys. He says idols are personal and cultural and intellectual. Identifying our idols is complicated because they are complexly interwoven. They're theological and sexual and magical slash ritualistic. They're political or economic. They're racial or national. They're relational, religious. They're philosophical or cultural. And they're deep. Deep idols are motivational drives and temperaments, such as power, approval, comfort, and control. They're motivational drives and temperaments that we make absolutes, and they seek fulfillment through surface idols, like money, family, or careers. His book, Counterfeit Gods, focuses on four main idols, the idols of love, money, success, and power. And he gives us a couple diagnostic questions to help us to discern our idols. First question, what do you characteristically daydream about? Second, what do you fear? What could you lose that would make life not worth living? Third question, what fills you with irrational anger, anxiety, despondency, or guilt? Fourth question. What do you effortlessly spend too much money on? Those are diagnostic questions to help us to identify 21st century idols, be they something external or something internal. Idolatry is relevant to us because we deal with idols all the time in our lives. Idolatry, sadly, is alive and well. So that is what idolatry is. Second question, why was meat sacrificed to idols in the first place? Like, what's, what's going on with this meat sacrifice to idols? Why did this occur? You see, families in the Roman Empire would seek the gods' help in their daily lives. To appease the gods, families offered them sacrifices. Not all families had the ability to have meat or to buy meat, to have access to meat, but those who were well enough to be able to offer an animal offered it, and they butchered it. And they offered that sacrifice to one of the pantheon of Roman gods. There are also butchers in the ancient world who wanted to make sure that their craft was blessed. And so they slaughtered animals and offered parts of those animals to the gods in exchange for good fortune. That's why they sacrifice idols. Third question. What's wrong with eating meat sacrificed to an idol? You see, eating this type of meat came with a host of issues. The first issue is this. Sometimes a weaker believer would see a stronger believer eating this type of meat. And they assumed that one could worship the gods and Jesus. And when they saw this Christian eating this idol meat, they said, well, you can do both. You know, clearly they're still believing in those gods because they're eating that God's sacrificed meat. So you can worship Jesus and the gods. And obviously, this is completely false. You can't worship Jesus and anything. Jesus Christ is to be worshiped alone. He alone is God and the sovereign of the universe. And there is no king but him and no king above him. So as they watch their friends who are also believers eat this type of meat, they didn't want them to get their messages crossed and confused to believe that you can worship Jesus and the gods. Paul acknowledges in verse 5 that there are gods, there are lords. There are so-called gods that the people worship as real. 
The gods in verse 5 refer to the, the Greek or the Roman deities. And the lords in verse 5 refer to the, the oriental deities. Paul hits both sides of this argument about idol god worship. He gets all the gods in one. The gods and the lords. He says there are many so-called gods and lords. They really do exist in the minds of the people. But they're also sometimes animated by demons. Second issue. Another issue is that meat being offered to idols was actually being offered to demons who opposed everything that God stood for. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to get here, obviously, um, in a couple months. Uh, but let's, let's have a little preview right now. 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 18. The word says, Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I implied that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. When they would offer this sacrifice to these idols, they were making offerings to demons to demonic, satanic powers that were not God. That was the second issue, but the third issue is this, with this idol meat. What often accompanied idol worship was sexual immorality. You remember Exodus, Moses, as God's representative, has delivered the people of Israel out of slavery, away from the Egyptians, and he's leading them through the, the desert. They're making their way from Egypt into the promised land, and there comes this point where God is ready to give Moses the Ten Commandments. So Moses goes up on this mountain. He climbs all the way up on this mountain, and he's gone for a while. You know, he's not around, and, and they're trying to figure things out, and he's, he's been gone for a while. And the word tells us in Exodus 32, it says these words, it says, when the people saw that Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. Aaron, who was the high priest, gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron, as the high priest, said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in, your, in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made the golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Aaron, the high priest, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord while worshiping this idol, this golden calf. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And that phrase, rose up to play, is, is a biblical euphemism for engaged in sexual immorality. So as they were worshiping this golden calf who, who they had obviously erroneously said had delivered them from Egypt, they engaged in sex while eating and drinking in the presence of this calf, of this idol. Paul says these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, he says, now these things, the same things we just read about, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, 
The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Or even Revelation chapter 2, where our Lord says in verse 14, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. You see, what often accompanied idol worship was sexual immorality, which God had clearly called his people away from and out of. There's a clear line between these two things. So this is why it's wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Those three reasons. Now, in utter contradiction to that, I want to tell you why it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols, because that's what Paul says. Next question is this question. Why is it fine to eat meat sacrificed to an idol? To understand this question, you must understand that in the Bible and in life, there are more categories than just right and wrong. There are right categories and there are wrong things, wrong categories, but there are also things that theologians call inconsequentials or permissibles um, or adiaphora, to use the Greek word for that idea. There is morally right, for example, loving your neighbor, helping those who have less than you have, praying for those who are in authority. Those are morally right things to do. There is morally wrong. For example, lying or stealing or committing adultery, just name a few things. There is morally wrong. But there are also things that are not right or wrong in and of themselves. For example, Jewish rituals and rules around cleanliness or even circumcision, or to use something that is relevant to you today, what color pants you wore to come to church this morning. Like, there's no right or wrong answer to that question. That's a gray issue. That's an inconsequential. That's, that's permissible. You can do whatever you want to in those areas. Meat sacrificed to an idol was squarely in the category of inconsequential. Notice verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. You're not worse off. You're not better off. It doesn't matter. Food does not make you acceptable to God. What you eat does not matter. He tells Peter in Acts, as we read, what feels like years ago, but last year, rise, Peter, kill and eat. It doesn't matter. Jesus tells us in the Gospels, it's not, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of a man. Like, like, like that's what defiles you. What you eat doesn't matter. We look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and the message paraphrase. I was a little bit jealous with um, SP last week because he actually quoted the message. Um, I thought it would be nuanced in doing that, but I wasn't. Here we go. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8 says this in the message paraphrase. The question keeps coming up regarding meat that has been offered up to an idol. Should you attend meals for such meat as served or not? We sometimes tend to think we know all we need to know to answer these kinds of questions. But sometimes our humble hearts can help us more than our proud minds. We never really know enough until we recognize that God alone knows it all. Some people say, quite rightly, that idols have no actual existence, that there's nothing to them, that there is no God other than our one God, that no matter how many of these so-called gods are named and worshipped, they still don't add up to anything but a, a tall story. They say, again, quite rightly, that there is only one God, the Father, that everything comes from him, and that he wants us to live for him. Also, they say, there is only one master, Jesus, the Messiah, and that everything is for his sake, including us. Yes, it's true. In strict logic, then, 
Nothing happened to the meat when it was offered up to an idol. It's just like any other meat. I know that, and you know that, but knowing isn't everything. If it becomes everything, knowing, some people end up as know-it-alls who treat others as know-nothings. Real knowledge isn't that insensitive. We need to be sensitive to the fact that we're not all at the same level of understanding in this. Some of you have spent your entire lives eating idle meat. And I'm sure that there's something bad in the meat that then becomes something bad inside of you. An imagination and conscience shaped under those conditions isn't going to change overnight. But fortunately, God doesn't grade us on our diet. We're neither commended when we clean our plate nor reprimanded when we just can't stomach it. But God does care when you use your freedom carelessly in a way that leaves a fellow believer still vulnerable to those old associations to be thrown off track. For instance, say you flaunt your freedom by going to a banquet thrown in honor of idols, where the main course is meat sacrificed to idols. Isn't there great danger if someone's still struggling over this issue? Someone who looks up to you as knowledgeable and mature sees you go into that banquet? The danger is that he will be terribly confused, maybe even to the point to getting mixed up himself and what his conscience tells him is wrong. Christ gave up his life for that person. Wouldn't you at least be willing to give up going to dinner for him? Because as you say, it doesn't really make a difference. But it does make a difference if you hurt your friend terribly, risking his eternal ruin. When you hurt your friend, you hurt Christ. A free meal here and there isn't worth it at the cost of even one of these weak ones. So never go to these idle tainted meals. If there's any chance, it will trip up one of your brothers or sisters. That paraphrase is so perfect. And uh, Eugene Patterson just like encapsulating all the ideas in this chapter that otherwise would be super confusing, this idea of idle meat. You see, eating idle meat is, is perfectly fine in and of itself. It really doesn't matter if you eat it because the gods that it's sacrificed to, they're not real. There's only one real God. The mature believer, the, the strong believer can eat all of these items without doing anything wrong before God. God is 100% fine with that person eating that type of meat. It's totally acceptable. But when someone who believes that eating this type of meat to be wrong is offended by your eating, you should stop eating this type of meat immediately. Let's move on from our first point of idolatry examined to our second point, idleness eradicated. Idleness eradicated. Verse 7 again says these words. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food is really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we eat and no better off if we do. Jumping down to verse 12. Thus sitting against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Our first question and the second point is this. Why should Christians avoid eating meat sacrificed to idols in the presence of weaker believers. Why should we do this? Even though eating meat sacrificed to an idol is fine, it is not morally wrong, it can cause a weaker believer to stumble. Consequently, we should never do things that weaker believers see as wrong. For example, in this passage, the weaker brother sees eating idol meat as wrong, and thus for that brother, 
Eating idle meat is a sin. Now, that's a big jump. I just said that you can eat idle meat. And now I'm saying that if you eat idle meat, it's sinful. It's a sin before God to eat this type of meat. For the stronger believer to eat idle meat in the weaker believer's presence would also be to sin against that weaker believer, to sin against their conscience and to sin before God, consequently. Verse 7, verse 9, verse 10. This idea is massive and has enormous implications. To summarize this idea, we should never encourage a believer to sin against their conscience. So to go back to my example with my friend uh, from, from, I don't know, circa 2013, we're sitting there talking in his house, and he's explaining to me these convictions that he has around alcohol. And at that time, I totally believed that drinking alcohol was absolutely morally wrong. It's something that Christians do not do. That was the context in which I grew up. I believed those ideas. At the time, I thought that I could use the Bible to justify those ideas. And so that was where my conviction stood. Now, my friend, in explaining to me his position, was showing me from the Bible why he landed where he landed. And in that conversation, he never said, Theo, you need to do this thing that I do. He didn't compel me to do that. He didn't tell me that I was wrong in not doing that. He just explained to me why he did what he did. And this is that idea. The idea here is that when it comes to these matters that are inconsequential, uh, these matters that are permissible, these gray areas, these things that are not necessarily right or wrong, you can land wherever you want to land on these issues and be totally acceptable, consequently. But when the person who has a conviction violates their conscience to do the thing that they believe is wrong, that thing that they believe is wrong becomes a sin to them. And you, as a believer, who encourages the person to do the thing that they believe is wrong, even though it isn't actually morally wrong by God, are sinning as well. So they sin by doing it, and then you sin by encouraging them to do it, is what Paul is telling us. So, another example of that is this. If a weaker believer believes that dancing is sinful, even though the Bible doesn't say that dancing is sinful, there's a lot of people that have this idea, then dancing becomes sinful for that person. And I can totally understand that. I used to, I used to teach and I used to go to prom every single year, and I could totally understand why they would have that mindset that dancing in and of itself could be sinful. I thought that was funny. Thank you. Those couple people that, that, that laughed. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, you're at prom, you run all these people, and they're dancing, and it's sinful. But then you go to, like, the Bible, um, and you go to, to David, and David is, like, dancing before the Lord. Uh, he's just, like, celebrating the goodness of God. He's, he's celebrating the fact that the Ark of the Covenant um, is coming back to God's people, and he's just, like, celebrating that triumphantly with, with dance before God. And it's perfectly fine. It's perfectly acceptable. In both of those, con those, uh, those contexts, that same thing, that same activity, could be seen as wrong, absolutely morally wrong, evil. You can be disobedient to God by doing that thing. Or as perfectly fine and permissible, you can be totally obedient to God by doing that thing. It's the same thing. It's great. It's inconsequential. And this is what God calls us to. He calls us to do whatever we do because of a clean conscience before him when it comes to these types of gray areas, these inconsequential things. A person should never violate their conscience by doing what they believe to be sinful, even if that gray item isn't what God has called sinful. Or to quote Romans chapter 14, verse 23, anything that isn't from faith is sin. Anything that isn't from everything, that isn't from faith is sin. Paul says these words, in Romans 14, he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, 
But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbringing. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Paul summarizes this idea. And to understand this area a little deeper, let's look at what Christian freedom is. Christian freedom. What is Christian freedom? This is the idea that we have freedom in Christ to enjoy many of the created things that God has given us without fear of condemnation at all from God. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says this, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Or Galatians 5.1, which says these words, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Man, for freedom, he set us free. Jesus liberated us from all things. Now this freedom has restrictions. We are free to do anything good in Christ. But that freedom is always restricted by love. Out of love, we limit ourselves. We don't partake in all the things that we could enjoy because some of those inconsequentials would be a stumbling block to our brother. Or to hear Peter say these words, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. That's what freedom is. So, last question. How should we exercise Christian freedom? If God has given us all good things to enjoy, if we who were once enslaved to sin are now free and alive in Christ, how do we exercise that? Like, like, how do we live this out? Let's make this practical. Most of you are not going to leave this building and go and offer, um, you know, meat to an idol. Most of you are not going to go to what you see and perceive as a physical idol and worship it or see anyone else physically go to an idol and worship it. So, so, so how do we live out this freedom? How do we exercise this today? Eric Raymond has said that we must have gospel-centered flexibility. One example of this is that when we look at Paul, he says that everything should be received with thanksgiving. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Everything received with thanksgiving. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13, that he is perfectly fine with never eating meat ever again. Ever. He just stopped it altogether. Everything is to be received at Thanksgiving. And I will never, ever eat meat again. This isn't contradictory. It is necessary for the furtherance of the message. We should be able to enjoy anything good and be perfectly content to lay anything good aside for the sake of our brothers and sisters. Put another way, 
We are to be self-sacrificial when it comes to exercising our freedom. We are to put other spiritual good above our freedom. Spiritual growth should always take precedence over personal comfort. Always. In every matter, in every way. What are some examples of things that are inconsequential? One of them we talked about earlier. Is it okay to dance? Inconsequential, it doesn't matter. Can Christians drink alcoholic beverages? The Bible talks a lot about how, how wine is a mocker and how in Proverbs it's wrong to, to drink strong drink and how you have to have your faculties and your senses in order. And Paul tells us in his letters, he tells Timothy to drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. Jesus drank wine. Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. And it was such a good wine that they said, you've, you've saved the best stuff for last. This is the best. That's what Jesus did. That was his first miracle ever. Can Christians drink alcoholic beverages? It's inconsequential. Is it right to smoke a cigar? Should women wear makeup? That's not really a question in 2001, um, but in 1990 or in 1980 or 1970 or 1960, that was the question. Should women, Christian women, wear makeup? A lot of women who are faithful to the Lord said, no, shouldn't. Should Christ followers go to the movies? What about TV shows? Are those things permissible for Christians? Should guys swim with girls at the pool? It's a question. Can you shop on Sunday? Can you play golf on Sunday? That's the Lord's Day, right? Like, if you want to honor that as the Lord's Day, can you do stuff like that? When you come to church, should you dress up? You're coming into God's house. Is it a requirement that when you come into God's house that, like, you wear, like, your best clothes, your fanciest clothes? Is that, is that a requirement? Should you dress up on Sunday? Should you go to, within my context growing up, the, the church that I grew up in, should you go to Sunday night church? If you were faithful to God back then in, in 2005 and six and seven, whenever I was trusting Christ for the first time, if you were faithful to God, you went to Sunday night church and you went to Monday night outreach and you went to Wednesday night service. That was a youth service and all the people that love Jesus did that. The people that didn't love Jesus didn't do that. So if I was gonna be faithful to God, I, I needed to go to those things. Um, if I wasn't, if I was some like pagan everyday high school kid, then I wasn't going to, to do all those things. So it's inconsequential. Like, did that make me more acceptable to God? No. Did that make me right before God? Not necessarily. Was that wrong for me not to do those things? No, it was inconsequential. And let me be even more practical and hit home, you know, because like we're living through these like COVID times, right? So should you, like, wear a mask? You know, there's a lot of people in this room with, like, very strong ideas about, like, wearing a mask. Like, um, you know, like, like should, you, should you wear a mask? You know, a couple weeks ago, me and Kevin are having lunch with someone uh, from the Gainesville area. And we're talking about, like, like, wearing a mask. And they're like, you shouldn't wear a mask. This is, like, unfaithful to God to wear a mask, you know, because, like, we have freedom in Christ and we're restricting ourselves and we're not you know, X, Y, Z, and we're like, yeah, that's, the, that's, that's a lot of those things. Like, we understand where you're coming from. Like, that makes sense. And we should, like, tell your people, like, do not wear a mask consequently. And we said, no, we will not tell our people that. And they're like, well, do you understand what I said, right? Yes. And you agree with us in a lot of those points, right? Yes. Um, but wearing a mask isn't a gospel issue. Like, wearing a mask is, is, is inconsequential. It's gray. It doesn't matter. If I wear a mask, I'm not going to be right before God. If I don't wear a mask, I'm not going to be wrong before God. It's great. It's inconsequential. It doesn't matter. But it's inconsequential. Like, I should be flexible when it comes to that question. I should use my freedom to honor others and to love other people well. That's what inconsequentials are ultimately about, is loving God well, honoring him first. And loving others, secondly. What Jesus would tell us would be the greatest commandment.
And you see, this entire idea is totally against the grain. This idea is about as un-American as you can possibly be. You see, we believe in radical individualism. Very few of us would say that if eating meat caused my brother or sister to sin, that I would gladly go vegan or vegetarian. There's probably not a lot of people that came into this room this morning that said, you know what? If it causes them to sin, I'll just go vegan, I'll just go vegetarian. We didn't come in with that mindset. But Paul tells us, have that mindset. He says, no, we believe that, this is the American idea, that as long as what we do, our actions, we don't perceive our actions as harmful to others, we can and should do whatever we want. We can do whatever, this is America, we can do whatever we want to. As long as we don't think that what we're doing is wrong, it doesn't matter what other people think about that thing. That's American. But that is explicitly not what Paul tells us to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, particularly verses 11, 12, and 13. And so the question is, are you willing to give up your freedom or comfort for someone else's spiritual good? Are you as, as zealous as Paul was to keep Christians from sin? Jesus loved you enough to die for you. Shouldn't I love you enough to die to myself for you? You see, Jesus gave up his comfort for us. You see, Jesus came to this earth to, to, to reunite us to God. He left his heavenly home. He left that eternal peace that he had had with the Father and the Spirit for all eternity. He left that to enter broken humanity. So great was his love towards us that he allowed himself to be mistreated to secure our unity with God the Father. Not only... Does he call us to have sacrificial love? But praise God, he is the model and the ultimate example of what that sacrificial love looks like. You see, praise God that Jesus is everything that he calls us to be. He's already done it. He's already given it all up for our sake to be reconciled with God, to be reunited to the Father. He calls us to do nothing that he hasn't already himself done. And so my question for you this morning is, have you trusted in Jesus savingly to know that he is infinitely better than we deserve? Infinitely better than all that we get. You see, you should be able to, in just a few moments, say, I'm caught up in your presence. I just want to sit here at your feet. I'm caught up in this holy moment. I never want to leave. You see, nothing else matters but Jesus. Nothing, like everything else is worth Nothing to us compared to the excellence and the value and the supremacy of Christ. Nothing else matters. This is what we're going to talk about in just a moment. This is what we're going to sing about to God. Because we're not the people who burn things to worship God. We're the people who open up our mouth and exalt him and pray to him and tell others about him. That's how we worship God. Robert Plummer summarizes this idea by saying this. Paul says that his personal ethical behavior in the realm of inconsequentials is constrained by his concern for the spiritual good of all persons, both believers and non-believers. He is completely flexible in the realm of moral inconsequentials. To Jews, he becomes like a Jew. To Gentiles, he becomes like a Gentile. To the weak, he becomes weak. Why, Paul explains, I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. Paul aimed to both preserve present believers and to bring others to initial salvation. His driving passion was the maturation and expansion of God's elect community, the building up of the church. 
in its own dealings, the church should be constrained by those same concerns as Paul. Later, in the same letter, the apostle restates the same principle in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, when he says, all things must be done for building up. Again, Plummer summarizes and sums up this entire chapter for us by saying these four things. Sorry, these five things. One, ethical reflection must be rooted in theological truth. Before we land somewhere as a conviction, that landing place should be built on the word of God. Two, from a biblical perspective, there are three moral categories, right, wrong, and inconsequentials. Three, even if a behavior is not objectively morally wrong, if a person thinks it is wrong and commits that behavior, he sins. Four, a Christian should show sacrificial love in protecting other Christians from temptation and sin, even when those other Christians are somehow weak or immature in their moral judgment. Five, a Christian's behavior should not be governed simply by the ultimate categories of right and wrong. In the realm of inconsequentials, a Christian's behavior must be shaped by the dual concern of A, other Christians' spiritual health, and B, the conversion of non-believers. Everything that we do should be governed by those two things. We are the people who worship Jesus Christ alone. We don't worship idols, and we don't worship ourselves. We don't worship Jesus and Apollos, Jesus and Buddha, Jesus and politics, Jesus and tolerance. We worship Jesus Christ alone and nothing else. <laughs> 